Blog Talk Radio. Our nation's history is rich in tradition and in stories. The real and imagined come together under the pen of David Healy, a journalist, educator, and speaker. Healy has put his hand to history, fiction, and thrillers. One of Healy's vehicles is through the eyes of soldiers in wars we know well, but not from some of the perspectives he employs. The Sniper series comes from the view down a rifle sights. We'll see it through Healy's Pacific Sniper, which is his latest in that series. And also, we'll hear about the Civil War through the short story Rebel Road, among others, and also the history of the Chesapeake Bay and the Delmarva Peninsula. So, David, welcome aboard. Hi, Tori. Thank you. Welcome. Well, I am thinking we've got a lot to talk about here, which is going to be fun. Um, I guess the first thing, and... Those who have listened to my program will know that this is sort of familiar. Uh, we met a couple of years ago at a book signing in Harvard Grace, Maryland, at a very curious bookstore, if I remember correctly. Oh, that, that's right. And I think that was kind of one of the last events that, um, that I did, at least, before everything sort of started to shut down. So that was, exactly. yeah, that was really uh, great, yeah. That was just a very interesting place to do it, and there was a lot of fun. And um, I, I guess it was one of those things where because there was only a few of us, we spent a lot of time talking, and it was like it, it reminded me of, okay, these are people I need to get on my show one time or another. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think you uh, you had Bob Lackey on, who was one of the authors yes. there. And, uh, Bob yeah, it was on, just yeah. a nice – yes, and I, I listened to uh, – some of that and it was great and yeah Washington Street Books and Harvard Grace it's, it's such a great shop because it's so eclectic and and um, when you're we're not uh, meeting people and signing books you can kind of wander around and um, they have a lot of movie props and uh, costumes on display which is a lot of fun that's true and the, the collectibles all of that it was like uh, you know, I'm, I'm walking through and going, I can't believe this place is here, but it's, it was, <laughs> I've never been in anything like that. And it was just, it was just fascinating. So that is something I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, as things open up, we can do that again, or that, that the owners will do something of the sort again, because I just remember having an awful lot of fun. Uh, it, it was fun. In fact, I saw on Facebook that um, the owner down there, John Savage, just added a costume from the movie Tuck Everlasting and oh, wow. which is neat because part yeah part of that movie was filmed uh uh nearby right near that near that store in Harvard Gray so kind of cool excellent well i guess my first indication of your style came from your series of works you like me right in a series and uh you have a number of war novels with 
snipers as the main character. I must ask, why the sniper? Well, I, I think what's interesting about using a sniper as a main character is that as a I am a big fan of war movies and things like that, of course, but where movies fall short a little bit is that you can't really get inside the sniper's head or the soldier's head. So the, the books have been a great opportunity to really uh, get inside the character's head as, as he's uh, out on the battlefield with his rifle. And for me, that's uh, that makes the stories really interesting. Mm-hmm. And the new work out of these, we'll, we'll definitely get into some of the other ones, but your new work is Pacific Sniper, and you have a very intriguing protagonist named Deke. Tell us about this fellow. Right. Well, <clears throat> uh, Deke Cole, Deacon Cole, he is actually a cousin of the character from the Sniper series set in Europe. So now we have another cousin from the mountains down south, and he's off fighting in the Pacific. And, of course, he's also a sniper, having grown up hunting and and, uh, shooting, and he's actually a really gifted marksman, but he's also very woodsy. He's good at woodcraft, and he transfers that to the jungles and the Pacific. So now the Japanese have a real adversary here in this uh, young man who's who grew up in Appalachia and grew up hunting and uh, is a crack shot. So that's been the character. And, of course, it's, it's always interesting, too, because characters like uh, Deke, they've never really been anywhere that's more than maybe 10 miles from home, right? Mm-hmm. They grew up in kind of an isolated uh, situation on a, in a rural farm. And now they are thousands of miles away on this Pacific Island. And it's, it's such a, um, uh, uh, just an amazing situation to put them into because it's almost like being transferred to an alien world, you know, something completely different from what they're used to. And, and I think that, uh, this, that's this, really a lot know. of a lot of soldiers, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a lot of a lot of, a yeah. lot of many soldiers during that time. Exactly. And and uh, I think that's that's really interesting, a really interesting aspect of writing about World War II because I often think even of my own grandfather who mm-hmm. was really typical of everybody's grandfather or father who was in the war. Because here was a guy who lived in, uh, he lived in South Boston and Cambridge. But you know what? He he didn't get stray far from the neighborhood. You know what I mean? Yep. And now now he's on a ship and he's in the Pacific and he's going to China and he's at Iwo Jima and um, Okinawa and witnessing these things. It's really incredible uh, when when you think about that. Um, how these uh, men were really propelled into these situations all around the world that they never could have even imagined, you know, um, uh, earlier. 
Yeah, and the parallel to that is my mom grew up in the Boston area. She grew up in Revere for a number mm. of years, that section. And mom traveled a bit more because, I mean, I grew up in Vermont, so she spent time in Vermont. She spent time in Boston. And she was a volunteer at the outbreak of war. And it wasn't oh, until a few yeah. years later that, that she went into the Coast Guard. So she ended up in Florida. And my mother has never, ta- never ever talked much about her military service. And mm. I know she was very proud to have done what she did. But her three brothers, you know, my three uncles, all served in different parts of the world. And I think even with their own sort of traveling about as young people, this probably was exactly the same. And I have no way of knowing because one uncle was merchant marine and then he went into the Navy and he served on the convoys to Russia. One fought in North Africa, oh. one fought in the Air Force, in, and he was stationed in England. Never once did any of them ever, to my knowledge, talk of their military service to anybody that wasn't mm-hmm. there. They were not. Right. They just, I, they, you know, I certainly never asked, and it, it, my mom just never said very much about what she did. And so it was kind of like, it wasn't so much there was nothing to talk about. They just didn't feel that we would get it. And whatever my uncle saw, they definitely weren't sharing. So I think your grandfather probably had a lot of that as well. I, I think that leads up to my question of wh- how much did he tell you or, or what points of reference did you have beyond him for these these characters and these experiences? Right. Well, Tori, it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of the – World War II veterans in particular really didn't talk about their experiences. And mm-hmm. I think I think part of it is just the idea that none of them thought what they did was exceptional because right. everyone else was doing it also. So I think there was a tendency just to, um, you know, kind of downplay what they did. And um, and then some things, of course, were very, uh, you know, painful, difficult to talk about. So certainly my grandfather did not talk about it much, except that toward the end of his life. And he was a lot more forthcoming, at least mm-hmm. with me, about uh, what, what he had been through. And I think, uh, you know, we just reach a point in our lives where we just need to tell somebody. Uh, about the things we've done, and I think that um, that was probably the case for him. Yeah, and there's the thing, too, and I remember one of my mom's experiences during boot training and later being stationed, and her whole time was in Florida during the war, she said that um, she remembered it was the first time for her really learning how to deal with people who were different from you. And dealing with people in your unit that were just, you know, their ways were completely different than yours. And you certainly might have come off as very, very different to them. Deke's character, the characters that Deke has to deal with in his unit are, some of them seem very, very familiar and also relatable. How did you go about finding some of those guys? And and there's there's the question of character development. How do we make them unique? (laughs) Right, and I think that when when you read my story or when you watch a, a lot of war movies, you do see those kind of archetype characters because 
they all do come together in the same unit, right? So we usually have a country boy and a, a, a city boy and, and, and people from different backgrounds. And uh, they do have to all work together. That's, that's a really good point. And it also makes a nice uh, contrast, right, because they're all so, so different. So I think for, for my characters, I was um, really focused on Deke is the main character, but he he needs people to work with. So I was looking for characters who would really play well against his country background. So his main buddy in the Army is Philly, who is, of course, from Philadelphia, and he's more of a, a city guy and not that experienced with being in the outdoors. He has kind of the gift of gab, whereas Deke is a really quiet character for the most part. So it's a, it's a good opportunity for some dialogue there because now we have a more talkative character who can who can kind of drag him out. And uh, I think that's typical, though, of the experience. You're right that a lot of the uh, World War II folks in particular had because they were meeting people who they never would have met. In, in their lifetime and had to work with them and live with them. And that, that's, um, it really opened their eyes in a lot of ways, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, what was really fascinating about Pacific Sniper was the interplay from the Japanese side with Captain Okubo, who becomes the rival to Deke. And I also especially in, you know, enjoyed the relationship he had with Private Kimura and here's this, you know, the the fighting spirit of the Japanese military. We certainly know well how they fought and how hard they fought. And I, you, you, you know, you had this captain who is just, you know, completely devoted to what he's going to do, and you have a private who suddenly becomes disillusioned by what is happening around him. Tell us how you found the Japanese perspective, because I found it really interesting. Right, Tori. That's what really intrigued me about including some Japanese perspective because I was trying to wrap my head around the uh, kind of uh, fanaticism that was happening in terms of fighting to the end and, and not surrendering and trying to understand that mindset a bit more because – I don't think that the U.S. soldiers or other Allied soldiers had that same mindset. So mainly I did a lot of reading into the topic. And Ian Toll has a really fascinating history of the Pacific War. I read all three volumes. I think it totals up to something like three or 4,000 pages. And he does delve into understanding what was happening on the Japanese home front. And yes. there was, uh, yeah, just a lot of, um, there wasn't really any room to question the war effort. And it's, uh, the emperor really was seen as almost as godlike um, personage. And um, there was a real military culture that existed over there that um, is hard for us to wrap our heads around sometimes. So I well, tried to yeah, include yeah. some of that. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because uh, I mean a lot of my writings are set in Japan, and people have asked me why I did that, and a lot of that was partly because I wanted to try something different. And yes, my reading as well had to take in uh, a land that we do not understand. And when you look back at that, the militaristic side of things, based on on my readings, Emperor Hirohito was still quite a young boy. And according to, I, I forget who wrote it, but I, there's a 900-page history called Japan's Imperial Conspiracy. And it's not really a conspiracy book. It's a, it's a history of time of feudal Japan up through, uh, I think, I forget exactly when it ended, but Hirohito was still alive at the time. And it, he hmm. was very heavily influenced by, cousin, by three cousins who were known as the Three Crows. And they were basically charged, they were military officers who were basically charged with looking after him when he was going to school and, you know, sort of helping him along and protecting him a little bit. But they also infused a great deal of militaristic view in him. So it didn't begin with him. He was a product of it. And the samurai code, Bushido, is long been uh, a part of their society and their military and i mean i can't explain it would take it would take an entire show in itself to try to explain this or <laughs> we would need a real expert to do it but right that way that that fighting way is just that is something completely alien to us and i think most soldiers i mean you notice how you know you, you brought well how deacon and, and his people are like what is going? Who are these people? What in the world are these people thinking? Right, and I, right. And from what I've read and from what I've heard, a lot of soldiers were just dumbfounded by what you know the bonsai charges, and that they just would not quit. And the it was something they had. To, we were, our people had to learn it. They had to learn fast that this is what we're up against. This is what we're going to have to deal with. Right, right, it, exactly, and. It was um, uh, <laughs> it was hard for most American soldiers, I think, to understand that that mindset. That's why I did want to include some uh, Japanese perspective in in the story, because I also didn't want the 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 Japanese to be perceived as kind of a a, a mindless enemy or anything like that. And, right. um, you know, and, and my books are mainly thriller stories, let's say. So you do need a air quotes villain in in the story to kind of be a, a foil to the main character, uh, Deke. But um, they're, you try to get inside their head a little bit and show that, um, that maybe they're not completely evil, but they're this way for a certain reason. So that's my attempt, at least, to kind of um, give some perspective on who we were fighting in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was interesting. You you chose, I think you chose the fighting on Guam. That was one indicative piece of what became island hopping, having to fight island to island to take back the territory. And uh, was there any specific reason for Guam? 
Well, it, part of it had to do just with the timing of, of everything. Also, the fact that I'm focused mainly on the, uh, on the Army, the U.S. Army in the Pacific, although it's usually the Marines we think of fighting in the Pacific. Yes. And Guadalcanal was really the first big island-hopping battle um, that, uh, that at least that's what I would say was the first big island-hopping battle. But that was mainly the U.S. Marines. So I focused on Guam, which uh, included more of the U.S. Army presence, and then it, it kind of picks it up from there. But mm -hmm. but you're you're right though, Tori. Typically, the war in the Pacific was all about island hopping and kind of uh, hopscotching from one island to another, always trying to move closer to Japan, and it was. Uh, um, you know, really, really brutal, but at the same time, it was all kind of the same. You know, the, the fighting was um, an advance across this vast Pacific and and attacking one island after after another, almost like dominoes. So it's um, it's interesting to to follow, and it's a good reminder of how enormous the uh, Pacific region really is. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Um, I have to get now into some of the other series. You began all of this with the with Ghost Sniper, and you take us through war on the varied sides of the conflict. Uh, tell us about that one, and, and really, how did this series begin? I know we've talked a little bit about why you chose the Sniper, but where does tell us about Ghost Sniper and how this begins. Sure. Well, Tori, really, that uh, series of Ghost Sniper begins... Um, with, with an earlier book uh, called Sharpshooter that was a Civil War novel and um, that came out in 1999 actually and that book was also about a sharpshooter uh, a sniper, they didn't really use that term sniper so much during the Civil War and it's from his perspective and so I, I kind of decided that it would be interesting to migrate that perspective to World War II. And that's kind of how Ghost Sniper got started. And when I, when I wrote the book, I really wasn't planning on doing a series, but I realized that there was a lot more of the story to tell because Ghost Sniper begins and ends really around the invasion of Normandy. But there's a lot more that happens right between uh, the, the beaches at Normandy and the hedgerows and uh, the fall of Berlin. So the uh, series started to fill in those blanks and, uh, and uh, follow uh, the character Cage Cole through the whole uh, European uh, campaign. So th that's kind of how it got started, just wanting to introduce a sniper character in, in uh, the World War II theater. Well, and that's the thing, too, is you take us to different areas. You take us to the Ardennes. Uh, you take us to Korea. And um, I guess it's like this, because when I write you know, the series I'm working on right now, uh, once I have a concept, all of a sudden it feels like the books start to write themselves a little bit. Is that – did you just get on that role? And, and what was it like after Ghost – you know, you, you were finishing Sharpshooter, getting into Ghost Sniper. Did you just feel this creative thing that just kept going, or how did it work? 
Right, exactly. And, and you know, Tori, like any writer, our heads are just filled with stories, right? So yeah. we um, – <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and there are way more books that we want to write than we'll ever have time to, uh, to get to in this lifetime. So for something like, like Ghost Sniper, it just seemed to roll naturally. You know, I told the, the initial story that was in Ghost Sniper, and I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if uh, now he continues, and um, and that's how uh, Iron Sniper came about, which is which is the next uh, book in the series, and uh, that's just kind of how how it evolved. And you know, for me too, I, I should say that the um, the uh, although the books are focused on sniper warfare. Um, try to focus a lot on the characters and adding in some of the history. And um, I don't want to say that I tone down the, the, um, the uh, details about uh, weapons and rifles and things like that. But for me, I really find the characters interesting and the story interesting. So I think that's the important part of those sniper stories to me. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing too. Is you? We talked. I was going to ask you about Sharpshooter, because you have a collection of works that deal with the Civil War. And uh, as you say, Sharpshooter came from that person's uh, mind. And there's an interesting thing there because he's got an assignment. He is supposed to kill General Grant. I thought that was right. We're going to shift into the Civil War, but I thought, oh, this is interesting because. Uh, Grant would certainly have been well known by the time of his ending the siege of Vicksburg and what he did through there before he came east and took over uh, the Union forces. So he would have had a target on his back, and I I don't recall any specific concerted attempts to get him, but there must have been. <laughs> well, well, well. Here's a tip: don't write a thriller about an attempt to assassinate. General Grant, when uh, we all know that he survived and became president eventually, right? <laughs> so we kind of know how the how the book is going to turn out. But it's the um, the, uh, the the effort that's that's interesting. And of course, I wrote that I wrote Sharpshooter years ago because it was published in 1999. But gosh, I in the 90s. And when mm-hmm. I finished it, um, my agent actually said, "Well, you know, this is." This is what you've really done is written Day of the Jackal set during the Civil War, and uh, which um, I had never read Day of the Jackals, so I was like, oh, interesting. So um, it it's a little like that in in a way, and um, yeah. So G- General Grant, he um, he definitely would have made a good a good target. There was only one one time where there was a possible assassination attempt and it may not even have been an assassination attempt on, on grant, but at city point, Virginia, where he had his headquarters on the James river toward the end of the Mm -hmm. war, there was actually an explosion down at the wharf. Uh, A bomb had been set on one of the, uh, of the vessels. And I forget all the details now. Grant was supposed to take that vessel somewhere. But it was close enough, the explosion was close enough that debris kind of rained down um, on him and his staff. And um, I think a couple 
people were injured uh, near him, but Grant escaped unharmed. But no real attempt to um, uh, use a sniper to take him out or a sharpshooter to take him out. And um, you, you almost wonder why, right? Because um, uh, there would have been some opportunity there, but uh, maybe no one played by those rules uh, back back at that time. Maybe it was seen as dishonorable to make that kind of attempt. So that's uh, <laughs> maybe that's why he was spared. Indeed. Now, one of the cool things too is uh, you have done. Uh, you, you talked about your love of war movies. Well, you also talk about – there's a lot of stories here about the Civil War, um, such as Rebel Fever and Rebel Train, and I found a lot of these really intriguing. Um, some of the stories that you, you gave me uh, to look at, um, there's you, – you've all, you excel at examining – you know, characters. And one of the things you do is you get us into the character, but you also get us into the place incredibly well. Sometimes I feel like authors try to take us somewhere and I'm still kind of sitting here. And it's like, to me, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, I've always had friends say to me, take me someplace, take me back in time, take me to wherever we are, suppose where you want to be. And you've done that with, and especially with the rebels is it's like um, the Confederates who are fighting what seems to be an endless war and it and uh i just you know the perspectives are really neat and is it, were you just sort of moving from story to story as well in this right i think that's what happened it's just the rebel series it's more of a what if situation so thinking about mm-hmm. well, what would have happened if things were just a little different or if this was kind of a a sidebar to the to the war because those stories are more um, behind the scenes of the war. They're not set on the battlefield so much, although the war is happening at that time. And, you know, for me, the the Civil War is is just so interesting because where I grew up in Maryland, uh, there were still folks around. Now, I grew up in a rural area, at least at that time, and we lived on a small farm and we were surrounded by farms. And at that time, there were still people whose families had lived on those farms uh, going back to the Civil War. And as a kid, I remember them even telling me stories about, oh, this is where my grandfather used to hide the, the horses and the livestock when the troops came through because the uh, Union troops would take all the horses or, you know, take all the, uh, the, the pigs and, and, um, and that wouldn't be a good thing for the local farmers. So there was, there were still these stories floating around about what happened during the civil war. And so for me, it was, it was kind of, uh, something I grew up with. And in fact, even, even the farm where we live, uh, never been able to track it down a hundred percent, but when, Jeb Stewart's men rode through on the way to Gettysburg. They actually went right through that area and were probably scavenging for chickens or whatever else they could find to eat, really, uh, right through that vicinity. And um, there were things, you know, like Confederate belt buckles found in the the fields, and, and there was a skirmish fought there. So, 
you know, growing up as a kid, it was just exciting to think about these skirmishes maybe happening, uh, uh, you know, in the field that you could see from, from your window. So um, it just always kind of captiv- captivated me, the, uh, the Civil War history for that reason. Well, that certainly, you know, it says it right there is that, you know, the fact that you lived in that area and I mean, I grew up in Vermont, so we were pretty much, there was very little that went on up there. Uh, right, a, right. There was a, there was a raid in a town to the west of where I, I was, if I remember correctly, in the latter part of the war. But other than that, we we're kind oh, of out right, of it. Oh, right, the St. Albans raid, yeah. Yes, we're, I, was, I grew up in Cambridge. We were 22 miles from St. Albans. And uh, mm-hmm. that was – the raid was very well remembered for what it – the attack, and I believe I believe they tried to loot the bank, and they may well have done that. I don't know. I don't remember exactly what happened, but um, it was – that was that was like our brush with it. But you're in the midst you're – li- you're like in the history of it, and so – so naturally that that all of those stories would be told, and that would just start being the the I guess you could say it's sort of like the pressure cooker. It starts to build slowly, right? Exactly, exactly. And it's um, especially as a as a kid, your imagination kind of runs wild with some of these things, and it just uh, always uh, sparked my interest and. And, you know, Tori, I have to say, I, I feel very lucky, and um, I, I think we're close in age, so you probably had this experience, too. But we grew up when there was no Internet. Um, you know, as a kid, we didn't even have cable TV or anything like that. So yeah. uh, there was, you know, when you were growing up, we, we would read read books. Uh, we read a yeah. lot of comic books, too. Uh, we used to just daydream a lot. We didn't have phones in our back pocket and we weren't worried about social media. And I, I think we were lucky because our imaginations got to, uh, kind of take on a, a life of their own in a way that, uh, maybe kids today aren't experiencing. And it makes me a little sad to say that, but, I, um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but that was my experience, right? Yeah, yeah, very much the same. Uh, we were very much the same way in that I think our imagination was a little more organic from the standpoint of this is what we have, this is what we know, this is – the world hadn't quite opened up to us in such a realistic way as it does now. Right, exactly, exactly. And um I think that was a good thing as for writers to grow up that way and uh, mm-hmm. just to have to rely on themselves um, times for uh, their own entertainment. And I think that's a great way to become a writer. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. It's like um, with all of this, when did you start? When did you start thinking about writing your own stories or when did you have the moment of I could do this myself? When, when did you think that happened? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I guess I'm just lucky because this is all I've ever wanted to do, right, from, uh-huh. from even when I was a, a kid. And so I, I remember that one of my favorite writers as a kid was a writer named William O. Steele. 
And he wrote a lot of frontier adventure novels, and I just devoured those as a kid. Those were the first chapter books that I read. And what I, what I would do, Tori, is today we would call it fan fiction because I would write my own stories with those characters mm-hmm. from yep. uh, William, William Steele's books. And uh, just for myself, and it was um, just something I, I enjoyed doing. And uh, mm-hmm. so that, that kind of sparked it. And gosh, I would have been in elementary school back then. And, uh, and it just kind of evolved from there, right? Well, this is, this is amazing because I was doing the same thing with Star Trek when I was a kid. I never <laughs> wrote any of them. Now, the thing was, uh, I saw Star Trek in syndication while I was in elementary school. And I, in my head, wrote fan fiction, only what I did was I very arrogantly made myself the captain of another starship. And I added all of my friends as the crew. I had made I made my best friend my science officer, my Mr. Spock, and he kind of was a bit Spock-like in that he was very analytical and very intelligent, and he was the perfect guy for it. And um, another of my friends was very mechanically minded, so I made him the chief engineer. And I, I never told anybody these things because they would have thought I was out of my freaking mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right, but but that's what we do, right? As as writers, and I think we all uh, get that start early, and and uh, we we just can't help ourselves, right? So it's um it's just a natural thing that that we do, and uh, and, and, I, and I still love those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I still love do, those. You, you, you no, know, keep going, keep stories. going. This is your show. <laughs> yeah, and. <laughs> And uh, and I I always try to tell people about them because they um, they're not very well known. You can you can still get the books; they're still in print, and they have beautiful yeah. covers now. And um, and they're they've probably fallen out of fashion a lot because um, you know there's conflict with Native Americans in there, and they're uh, it's a little one sided, right? Uh, in terms of how the um, uh, the viewpoint, but uh, that changed because William Steele, as a writer, he even um, wrote about this later in life, and he wrote stories that were more fully told from everyone's perspective. But he was writing to the market, you know, back in the 1950s when um, mm-hmm. that was kind of the viewpoint. But they, nonetheless, they are they are good stories, and I think the whole frontier adventure story for kids is kind of fallen by the wayside. Uh, I think once Star Wars came along, uh, that was that was really the big shift. You know, suddenly everything was focused on uh, science fiction and being like Luke Skywalker. And I think before that, it was, um, there was probably more connection with, you know, Frontier Days and shows like um, uh, Daniel Boone and, uh, and Davy Crockett as, as a hero. So that's yes. kind of what I grew up with more so, and uh, have fond fond memories of uh, those books and watching uh, Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. Yeah, actually, speaking of war novels, I you might know you might be the only person who knows who this guy was. Um, when I was about twelve or thirteen, I discovered a book called The Destroyers by a fellow named Douglas Reeman. 
And I fell in love with this guy's books. He wrote a long string of novels, most of them set during the Second World War. And he occasionally did different wars and that kind of thing, and almost all of them were from the Royal Navy perspective. I think he was in it. And he did something that was really interesting to me was he didn't go to onto the big battleships. He didn't do that kind of thing. He set his characters in the small vessels, uh, the old destroyer, the clapped-out merchant steamer that has now got a couple of guns on it, a mini-sub. <laughs> and the characters were mostly working-class, gritty, relatable guys. And occasionally uh -uh. you'd have different characters. And I just remember finding them some of the best stories I'd ever read because they were very smooth reads. You you kind of figure and, – and of course, you know, the inevitable scene where there would be the inevitable battle scene where pretty much half the crew is going to be wiped out and the ship is going to get the, all, all full of holes. And <laughs> you wonder, okay, are they going to sink or are they going to find a way out of this? And they were just great stories. Wow. Well, see, I, ha I have not read those, but guess what I'm going to put on my Kindle after this interview? <laughs> <laughs> I, I Well, that, The Destroyers is a very good one. There's another called The Pride and the Anguish that w was set in Singapore. That was probably the best one, but man, there's like 20-some. He did a couple of dozen, and they were just real, real good mm -hmm. stories, and I remember that that spurred me too, but now, back to you. Um, as you're working on these things, uh, you moved into journalism. Uh, what was the path like from adolescence up and in? Right. Well, I, I went off to college. I went to Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland. And that was such okay. a, a wonderful place to go to uh, be a young writer. And the atmosphere there was so encouraging, and we got to meet a lot of uh, really well-known writers who would come to campus, and the one who sticks in my mind is William Styron, who wrote mm -hmm. Sophie's Choice, is probably his most famous novel, and he was just so gracious and uh, sat down and, and met with us as, as writers, and it was actually a a great way to be encouraged because, you know, when you're when you're growing up and you say that you want to be a writer, um, at least back then, uh, there weren't a lot of role models, let's say, or it seemed a little far-fetched. But here was a chance to meet someone who was actually doing it, and, and he just seemed so so down to earth and interested in us as young writers. So that was a great encouragement, and um, of course, then I needed a job and got into uh, journalism, which was a um, just a great experience for learning how to write quickly and realizing that there's yep. no such thing as writer's block as a journalist. No, there isn't. <laughs> because you're not allowed to have writer's block, right? So that was excellent training, I think, for a fiction writer. And I've been, I, I'm still doing it today. And yes, it's it's one of those things. It's like you you learn to write on the fly, and you just learn to focus it in a in a different way, where we can expand on our novels and stuff. But it's like you need we need a thirty second voicer now. <laughs> <laughs> right, we need it now. 
Right. So you, you can't um, say to your uh, to your editor, well, I'm not really in the mood, or I just <laughs> I can't quite. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Definitely not. It's not gonna it's not gonna work out for you if you uh, have that response. So I, I think it was it was really good training, and uh, and 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 I enjoyed it. And um, of course now now as as a teacher, um, you know, I teach teach college writing. And um, a lot of students will say they have writer's block. And, you know, I get that because they're not um, – that their job isn't to write. So if, if, mm-hmm. if you're not doing that, it's easy to throw up these roadblocks. But I think um, working in the newspaper business was, uh, was a great way to realize that uh, you just have to forge ahead. And, and um, it's not always easy to – to get your writing done because when you are um, working full time and maybe have a young family and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a house to take care of, there's a lot to juggle and it's, um, it can be, can be challenging. And I I know that for me, after, uh, after Sharpshooter came out, that was my first published novel and that was published by uh, Jove Books. I don't even know if Joe Books is still around, but it's uh, it was part of uh, Penguin Putnam. And um, mm-hmm. after that, I wrote my second novel. But you know, it was tough because of uh, everything else that was going on in life. So the only time that I had to write, and this was Rebel Train that I wrote next, and that's a Civil War novel. And the only time I had, because I worked the um, second shift at, at the paper, and we would put the paper to bed around, you know, 11 p.m., um, and I would get yeah. home, and I would sit down and write between midnight and 2 a.m., and then I'd have to be up by, um, you know, 6 or 7, because mm-hmm. our, our, our daughter would be up, and, and my wife would be headed off to work. So it, it was really challenging, but... Um, but I got it done, and I actually wrote that one out in, uh, in longhand on legal pads, which I would not recommend for anyone. <laughs> but <laughs> because then yeah, I can't read my handwriting, so I, it's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was. It, but in spite of all that, the book somehow got done, and it's um, there. Uh, being read today, which is kind of amazing. So it, it's not always easy, but if we have that that drive that we have to write something, you know, we always find a way, you know, even if it's, and, and Neil Gaiman talked about this too, because I guess earlier in his uh, writing career, he, he didn't get zero, almost zero time to write the stories that he wanted to write. And so he would just make a point that, okay, if I write one sentence, that's good, right? It's a start and a step yep. in the right direction. And so yeah. if, if folks are looking to write, you know, you just have to stick with it and, um, and, and make, the, make that time. And I know it's not always easy. Well, and, and that's the thing I always ask people about is, is finding that time. or You really do have to make it, and you have to hope that folks around you understand that, that this is a thing you need to do. And I've often – when it comes to writer's block, I, I say to people there really isn't any such thing, but what I tell people is just because the words aren't coming out onto a page does not mean that you're not writing. If you're 
if you're thinking about your story, if you're thinking about the characters, if you're trying to work out the scenes, you're writing in your head. You're doing something. And that's good because yes. then it's the prelude to you actually sitting down and saying, okay, now we're going to go. And, uh, you know, people ask me, how do I, how have I written the things I've written? And I say, well, when I finally get organized, get my storyline and my character organized, I will just write one chapter a day and during the first draft. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say, okay, if it's five pages, fine. If it's 20 pages, fine. Just get that chapter done. And sometimes I just keep going, and that's fine. But yeah. I just tell people, mm-hmm. do the one chapter. Um, I, if I remember correctly, Bob Woodward often wrote, when he was working a book project, he would write 10 pages a day, no matter how long it took him, and he was done for the day. Uh, one of his editors yeah. said that, that he would just do 10 pages and, okay, I'm going to go do this, or I'm going to work on this, or I'm going to go go somewhere else. So everybody's style's a little bit different. I think Larry McMurtry would do five pages a day, and he would just write five pages, and then he would go run his bookshop. So yeah. I thought, well, that's kind of mm-hmm. cool, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I I think it's good to have those those kinds of goals and and that self-discipline and even if they're not big goals, you know, writing five pages a day for Larry McMurtry doesn't seem like a lot, right? Yeah. Not with his style. Incredible. <laughs> right. Exactly. But he has this incredible body of work as, as a result. So it all adds up after a while. So it's, um, and I know that's, that for me, I try to, uh, I have pretty modest goals as a writer. I, I used to be more like you, Tori, and would just keep writing. You know, on a Saturday, I might just go for broke, and, you know, I would write 5,000 words or something in, in a day or more um, in bursts like that. But now I just kind of pace myself. For a long time, my goal has just been to write 1,000 words uh, a day. And when, I'm, when I hit that point, I usually stop. <laughs> and uh and, and that's and that's okay you know because it's um a goal you can reach every day and i like to enjoy writing also and uh it's it's the thing that i love to do and i never want it to feel like it's onerous in any way so the thousand words yes is just works for me mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um in terms of the people that you're the young folks that you're teaching uh, we talked about how you and I grew up in a different time. They're growing up in a different time. Is the mindset for them when it comes to writing, do you think it's – is it more difficult for them to create as they do, or do you see a different – is it a different style? Is there Are there similarities in what you're seeing in this generation of what could be our next generation of writers? Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting question, and I think that um, – I think there is an interest in telling different kinds of stories than maybe uh, we grew up reading and telling. And, and that's a good thing. You know, that's okay. It evolves over, over time. You know, if you, if you go back and read the classics, those are stories that we probably wouldn't write today. They've kind of endured, but uh, today um, folks have their own stories to tell and maybe their own way of, of telling them and and I think that's uh, that's a good thing and you know it's kind of interesting that books have endured you know people are still reading 
perhaps now more than ever, uh, thanks to e-books and audio books. You can easily listen to a book now when you're in your car or out working out or out for a walk. And we, we really consume a lot of stories. And that's almost surprising um, to me these days. But uh, as writers, something maybe we can do to help that continue, to help that tradition continue, is just promote reading as much as we can. Because if there's anything that's falling by the wayside, I think it's, it's the actual act of sitting down and reading a book, whether it's yeah. in print or an e-book. And we just need to be advocates for that, I think, and just remind remind people that it's okay just to read for pleasure, for fun. And that is something I share with my students all the time. Because even if they're reading in an area that has nothing to do with what they're studying, that's okay. You know, if they're that's and if good. they're just reading a magazine, it's good it's all good. And right. I very much. I won't even right, and I won't even attempt to uh go into the brain science behind it, but the more when we don't read those kind of neural pathways in our in our brain uh, that help us process and understand words on the page kind of go by the wayside, but we can quickly rebuild them when we read more. So I think it is true that when you when you don't read books, then um, it gets harder to read a book because you're out of training. And so I think it's a good idea to um, make sure everyone uh, gets a chance to exercise the, that reading muscle. And, you know, for, for things like birthdays and uh, Christmas presents, something that I always recommend to my students, and this is way off what we are really focused on in our, in our classes, but uh, I always remind them, hey, get the, get the kids in your life uh, a book. I know they yeah. want toys and, and things like that, but get them a book to read. And um, I guarantee that the book you give them will still be on their bookshelf years and years later, maybe treasured, maybe something that they they hang on to, uh, where that, that toy, that plastic toy is broken years and years ago and forgotten. And uh, it's yeah. just a good little reminder of, of the value of books and reading. Okay. Well, in the time we have left, I must ask, where can people find out more about you, about uh, your upcoming work, Rising Sniper, which is set for next year, I think, and uh, and just about right. you in general? Well, Tori, I have a website that I, I keep updated with new first chapters and book news and odds and ends, and that is davidhealyauthor.com. And I should add that Healy is H-E-A-L-E-Y because right. my ancestors worked very hard for that extra vowel. <laughs> <laughs> and, right. And um, also on Facebook, I have a Facebook page for an author page. And you can just Google those, you know, if, uh, if someone's just listening. And they should pop up on on the uh, Google results, uh, but yeah, check it out. And I, and I love to hear from from folks and uh, and their own stories. A lot of a lot of people will read a book and then um, share 
in an email about their own father or grandfather who was in the war or their mother, you know, like, like your mother, a lot of women obviously served in the war effort or even civil war stories. Um, I've often heard from folks who are uh, related to maybe a famous general or had uh, uh, probably a great grandfather uh, who served uh, Gettysburg or something like that. And I love those stories. That's just fascinating. So please right. get in touch and share those stories. Yeah. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. This has been a blast, and I really appreciate it. I hope we uh, can run into each other again sometime. I hope so, Tori. I, I really thank you for, uh, for letting me come on the show and talk about books and reading. And, you know, I could go on all day, but <laughs> I think we've covered a lot in an hour, so thank you. All right. Thank you so much. All the best. Thank you, Tori. Bye. Our guest on the Brown Posey Press Show is David Healy, author of numerous works of fiction and nonfiction. His latest Pacific Sniper is available at Intracoastal Media. I'm Tori Gates, your host, author of Call It Love, the second volume of the Sweet Dream series, as well as its predecessor, Searching for Roy Buchanan. These and other of my works are available at sunburypress.com, amazon.com, and ask for these at your favorite independent bookstore. Thank you for listening. This is the BookSpeak Network. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.